Please be ready to sing after Ken's lesson this morning. Let him have his way with thee. Number 343, we'll use that song as a song of invitation after Brother Ken brings us a lesson this morning. Let's all stand together now, though, and sing, Let Jesus Dwell Within Your Soul, number 661. <clears throat> Well, it seems the word has somehow gotten out that Norma Jean and I are having a birthday pretty soon. Not sure how all that occurred, but I, we've gotten a lot of comments about it. And as I was working on the lesson for this week, I was reminded of a story that Bill Crowder told about shopping for a birthday card. And he went into a Hallmark store and he found one that said, you're only young once 
but you can be immature forever. Now, I suppose unless you're a fan of Peter Pan, there may be something attractive about not growing up. But hopefully, as we reach a certain age in life, chronologically, that we also reach a certain state of maturity, that we understand that it is uh, inappropriate and unacceptable as we grow older to act like little kids or be immature. Now, we have some fine young people sitting up here that are different ages, but I can remember when I was like 15, 16, and maybe I did something immature, and my mother would say, Kenny, act your age. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever heard that from a parent or not, but you know what that means, don't you? That chronologically, you're a certain age, but you're not emotionally or behaviorally acting that particular way. Well, you know, that's not only true from a physical, material standpoint, that's true from a spiritual standpoint as well. In the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul here talks about a unity and a oneness that we ought to have as we walk in Christ. And in verse 11, he says that he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, I want you to notice verse 13. He says, until we all reach the unity of the faith, and in the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. In this text, the Apostle Paul is telling the Ephesian Christians that because of what Christ has done, because of the gifts He's given, because of the equipping and edifying that take place in the local church, that it all should point toward a maturity that they are to grow up and they are to become mature in Christ and, he even says, to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This morning I want to talk about the measure of our maturity. Now, I cannot help but also think about this as I reflect back when our kids were young. You know, children like to be measured. And Kenny always wanted to grow up and be tall like me. And he never did get to be tall. He's only 6'3". But he would, he would come up. He wanted to be measured. And he'd come and say, Daddy, measure me. And we had a place where we lived at different times. And we'd, like you do, you draw a little mark there. And, you know, sometimes he, he would ask me so soon. He hadn't grown any. But, you know, it would be a quarter of an inch or a half inch or another inch. He was excited about all of that. Well, could we get excited this morning and say, Preacher, measure me. Take the Word of God, take the standard, take the rule, and let's just be measured spiritually by what God has to say. Well, that's what we want to do this morning. We're glad you're in the audience this morning. We do have guests with us today and some that are traveling, some that are from the community. But you've come to be with us in worship, and I hope our worship has been of such a nature that you've been edified and uplifted. And I hope and pray that in the study this morning, as we look into God's Word about these measurements of maturity, that you can find something you can take home that will help you in your spiritual walk and in your quest to become more like Jesus Christ. I want to look this morning at five measurements, ways that we can, we can look at that are concrete, 
ways that we can quantify. And I'm going to give you a scoreboard if you're in your sermon notes. And, and, and I'm not going to ask you to show this to me or anybody else. Everybody keep their eyes on their own bulletin this morning. But when we get down to each one of these points, just reach yourself on a scale of 1 to 10, with 10 being the highest. And you're going to have to do what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves whether you be in the faith. And so I can't do that for you, but look in your own heart as we look at each one of these five. Just be honest, how are you doing? And that'll give you some high idea how far you need to go in your growth. Well, you're ready to be measured. Number one, how about knowledge? Knowledge is a measurement of spiritual growth. It was Benjamin Disraeli that once said, to be conscious that you're ignorant of the facts is a great step toward knowledge. Well, that's not only true in the secular realm, but it's true in the spiritual realm of, as well. To, be, to realize that there are things that we don't know. To be conscious of the fact that they, we may not have learned everything that we need to learn. We are commanded as believers to grow. In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, Peter commanded that grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we are commanded to grow. Now, young people, you, you have those measurements in school, don't you? Do they give, still give tests in school? Where you go, they give tests. Oh, you're excited about tests. Well, that's a no, not really, huh? Well, it's a measurement of growth. It's a measurement, I suppose, to see if the teacher has done a good job teaching. But did you do a good job learning? And so you take a test and you fill it out and you get a grade and it comes back and you're either excited about that, but it shows you've learned the material, or maybe you're not so excited because you didn't do so well and didn't learn the material. Now, we don't give tests in the Lord's church. We don't pass out a test and say, let's see how we did. Maybe we ought to, Stephen. Maybe we ought to just at the end of each quarter have a test. I don't know. It's a, it's a thought, just a thought. But we don't do that. But how are you doing in knowledge? Where is your knowledge? Are you growing in knowledge? If you've been a Christian five years, is your knowledge greater now than it was when you started five years ago? If you've been a Christian 10 or 15 or 20 years, do you have greater knowledge? Now, there are a lot of things that we need to know. I want to just bullet seven things that I want to suggest that you think about that if we're growing and maturing that we need to know. One, we need to know God. Now, we need to know facts about God, and we look in the Old Testament, we learn about the personality of Jehovah and the character of Jehovah and the way that God deals with people. But there's another aspect of this that I want us to think about. One writer put it this way. He said there is a huge difference between working for God and being with God. That thought is nothing new, but when you're in the business of making God known, it's easy to forget. And then he writes, there are light years of difference between knowing about God and knowing God. And so just think about your knowledge of God, not just from a factual standpoint, but in terms of really knowing God and having a relationship with God and being intimate with God, of walking with God. How are you doing with that? We need to know who Jesus is. And we're studying this quarter in our classes, The Life of Christ. Well, it's not just, again, a matter of getting a lot of facts about Jesus, but we're trying to learn about the character of Jesus, the personality of Jesus, the, the, who Jesus really was, that if we're going to become like Christ, as our theme is here at West Main this year, 
that we can follow his lifestyle, his attitudes and his actions and, and who he was. We need to know Jesus. I need to know God's plan for my salvation. And if you're not a Christian, you certainly need to understand that. But not just for those that are not Christians to talk about faith, repentance, and baptism. But I need to understand my purpose in God's plan. That it's not just a ritualistic kind of thing that I go through or some hoops that I jump through, but that God has a purpose for me in His plan of salvation. I need to know about His church. The Bible talks about His church and the establishment of the church and the work of the church and the worship of the church and the organization of the church and the ministry of the church. I need to understand what my role and my responsibility is in the Lord's church. We have a responsibility. And it's important for us to understand that, that God didn't create us just to be lone rangers out here all by ourselves, that we have a collective relationship with other believers in what we call the church. I need to know about the Bible. It's relevant to my daily life and understand how to, to study the Bible and, and how to apply the Bible and, and the hermeneutic and interpreting scriptures from the Bible. I need to know the Bible. I need to know how to live in this world relationship. You know, it's tough sometimes, isn't it, to live in the world? And we need to know how to do that and how, how to interact and to deal with problems and challenges. And then I need to know who I am. Now, I don't mean this in some kind of a mystical kind of a way, but as we suggested from 2 Corinthians 13, 5 a moment ago, that I need to get inside myself and examine myself and look at my heart and look at my motives, and look at my intentions. Who am I really? How are you doing with knowledge? How do you measure up? Are you a 10? Are you a 5? Are you somewhere in between or something less? Only you know that. But stop and think about it. Now, the problem and the challenge, ladies and gentlemen, I think is this sometimes. That too often times we stop here. And too often times that we have put, and, and, and I preached on already this morning here for eight minutes or so about knowledge. So you know, I know it's important and we're commanded to grow in knowledge. But we don't just stop at that point of maturity. There is more to Christian maturity than just knowledge. And if we're not careful, we put such a premium on knowing the Bible that we look at it like a sophomore history class that we can just regurgitate a whole bunch of facts and we're mature because we know the Bible. Well, there's another step. It's called discernment. Now, I want you to think about discernment a little bit. The Bible tells us that we need to grow in our discernment, let me just start with Philippians 1.9 where Paul prayed that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge, but then he adds that, and in all discernment. Now, there's another word for discernment, and that's the word perspective. And it has the idea of a perception that we have about things. To paraphrase Abraham Maslow, he said, if the only tool you have is a hammer, you tend to see every problem as a nail. Well, that's an issue of perspective as we look at things. Let me, let me give you a, a secular illustration. I read one time about this farmer in Maine, and he was approached by a stranger that came up to his farm. 
And he had a cow, a Jersey cow that he thought a lot of. And the fellow asked him, he didn't know the fellow, the how much he thought his cow was worth. And the farmer thought for a moment and he said, uh, are you the tax assessor? Or did you hit my cow with your car? <laughs> now, you see, there's a little difference there in perspective that we might have depending on the situation. You know, from a biblical standpoint, I'm reminded in Samuel when David went to see about his brothers. You remember how Goliath was taunting the children of Israel and came out and challenged them to a one-on-one -on -one duel, a battle, and there's a winner-take-all kind of a deal. And, of course, the children of Israel were running, and David comes up there and sees all of this. And someone quipped that the Israelite soldiers said, Goliath is so big, we can never kill him. And David looked at him and said, well, he's so big, I can't miss him. Well, there may be some truth to that, but it, it, it makes the point of perspective. That what is your discernment or your perspective in looking at things? Now, perspective or discernment answers the why questions of life. I'll give you another Bible example of this. Psalm 103 and verse 7, it says that God made known His ways to Moses and His acts to the children of Israel. Now, that's a pretty simple verse, but think about that just a second. The people got to see what God did, but Moses got to understand why. And so there is discernment. There is perspective that we have. And so, yes, we need to grow in knowledge, and you, that has to be the foundation to add to our knowledge, but are we adding discernment? Are we developing a perspective about the things that we know? Let me just bullet for you five benefits of having discernment. Number one, it helps us get our priorities straight. Without a proper perspective on life and who we are and what we're to be doing, our relationship to the Lord, it's easy even as Christians to get our perspectives all out of whack. And so Jesus would say in Matthew 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. That is having the right perspective on our priorities. Not only that, Perspective causes us to love God more. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul prayed for the Ephesians, and he prayed that you may be able to comprehend with all of the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so as we develop a greater perspective and discernment, about what Christ did for us. We come to communion each week and we sing about the love of God and think about it, that we learn then to love God more. Not only that, discernment aids in resisting temptation. I'm going to do a whole lesson on that tonight, so I hope you'll come back tonight. It's not only been a lesson that's been requested, but there's been a number of requests I've had that kind of fit in to studying about temptation. And we're going to look at what James said about the problem of temptation. And James says a whole lot about it. But how do you deal with temptation? Well, you have to get the proper perspective about temptation if you're going to be able to deal with it. Discernment helps us handle the trials of life. Life has trials. Life has problems. Life has challenges. How do we approach those? And how do we 
deal with those. James also said, brethren, count it joy when you fall into various trials, knowing the testing of your faith produces patience. And so as we deal with trials, one perspective on a trial is this, that the trial helps me get stronger. The trial helps me develop a deeper faith and a, and a stronger faith. Now, we could look at the perspective of trials being a bad thing. And Lord, why is this happening to me? But don't you see how that when I have discernment, that I can look at the problems and the challenges that I face in the proper perspective. And then it will protect us from error. Jesus in the mountain message in Matthew chapter 7 warns against false teachers. He said, beware false prophets, that they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. He said, you will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Well, when we have the proper perspective based on our knowledge, we can discern then the difference between truth and error. So how do you measure up and your discernment? Now, you may be looking at this and maybe you maybe you gave yourself, uh, let's say, an eight on knowledge. Maybe you feel pretty good about your level of knowledge. But then you've got to look at your discernment level and say, my discernment has a little catching up to do. I'm only a six. I've got some work to do to have the proper perspective about applying God's Word to my life. So only you can decide that. How are you in your maturity level? Well, a third way that we can measure maturity is by conviction. We read in the Bible of a number of God's greats that were people of great conviction. The Apostle Paul comes to my mind as a man that was, had deep convictions in many places, he speaks of things that show his conviction. One such passage is in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 12. He said, for this reason, I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him until that day. This is just another way of Paul speaking of his conviction. I know in whom I have believed. I'm convinced. I'm convicted. I am persuaded. There is no doubt in my mind. A conviction is a strong, firmly fixed belief. It involves your values and your commitments and, and your motivation. Howard Hendricks put it this way. He said, a belief is something you will argue about. A conviction is something you will die for. That's a big difference, isn't it? We might believe something and argue about it, but are we convicted enough that we'd literally give our lives for that? Kim Blanchard put it this way. He says, being conviction-driven means doing the right things for the right reasons. Beliefs and convictions provide the boundaries and the direction that people want and need in order to perform well. Now, while Blanchard was no doubt writing those words more in a secular application, when I read it, I thought that, that certainly has a great spiritual application. That our convictions have to do with beliefs that drive us. And we do the right things, but for the right reasons. They give us boundaries. They give us direction. They give us what we need and how 
God is able to move us in the right kind of direction. A person without convictions is susceptible to being influenced by the crowd. And they're blown here and there and in and out and up and down. Paul, in this same Ephesian letter we began in a while ago in chapter 4, and this time in verse 14, said, Then, when we mature, going back to 13, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind and teaching and by the cunning craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. When? When we mature. When we grow up. When we reach a point that the Lord wants us to be in our maturation and spiritual development. And so think about your conviction. How convicted are you of what it is you say that you believe? How would you measure up? How would you rate yourself? Would you maybe look at your knowledge and you've got a lot of knowledge and maybe you have a perspective about that knowledge and some discernment, but when you find yourself out with your friends that maybe your convictions don't always follow through in doing what you know you ought to do? See, the deep conviction causes us to do the right things for the right reasons, doesn't it? And so when the temptations come along, then we make the right kind of decisions. Well, a fourth way that we can measure maturity would be skills. A skill is something you do with ease and accuracy. Webster says that it's the ability to use one's knowledge effectively and readily in execution or performance. It has to do with a, something that is learned, a learned power of doing something competently, a developed aptitude or ability. Now, how do you develop a skill? You develop a just listen to a lecture. Some of you that are in athletics, and I see a few of you here that are, do you learn a skill by sitting down and the coach telling you, well, this is the way you ought to perform, and here are the plays, and, and you just sit there in the locker room and you just go over that. If that's the way you learn. You get out on the practice field. You get out on the court, and you begin to do some things. You see, Skill relates to doing. Skill relates to doing. And so James would say to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. Now, I, I understand that we're commanded to obey, and so we could make the argument, yeah, but James wants us to be obedient. I understand that. And yet, how do we mature? How do we grow? How do we become proficient? Well, we do that, we, we become that by our actions, by our doing. So I want to make some applications about some skills that we need to learn in order to be more mature in Christ, and they come about by doing. And these are just 10 that, I mean, they, maybe there's 20, maybe there's 50, but here are just 10 for you to think about. How about Bible study skills? Now, some of us take that for granted. If you grew up like I did, going to church from the time you were born, and hearing preachers, and I was blessed to grow up in very strong churches, and the preachers taught about how to study the Bible, and I went to classes on how to study the Bible, that I, I know that. But you take someone that's a new Christian, they don't know where to begin. In fact, sometimes people will say to me that are not Christians, that I, I, I'm thinking about studying the Bible, and I, I don't know where to begin. And they think, well, just to begin in Genesis and start reading through. Well, that sounds good on the surface, but if you don't know a lot about the Bible and about Jesus, 
And about the church, I always say, read the Luke Acts. Read Luke, and because Luke was the author of Acts, go straight to Acts. You know what that will do? That will give you a lot of insight into Jesus and the life of Christ and the church that he died to establish. So that's kind of a beginning point. But there, there's a hermeneutic to studying the Bible. And that, that had just come about accidentally. There is a methodology of being able to understand the Bible. How about prayer skills? Now, once again, those of us who have been Christians a long time, we take that for granted. You ever thought about how a new Christian learns to pray? Well, sometimes they learn just to listen to us. And if we're not careful and we fall into repetitious, hackneyed expressions, they think that's the way you ought to pray, and they pick up these same expressions. And that's not really what prayer is about. Prayer is conversation with God. But the Bible teaches us. You know, the disciples came to Jesus one time and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus gives a model that we could use as, a, as an outline. And I can take that and I can teach someone. You don't have to say these certain phrases or cliches that you may hear some people say. Here's kind of a model. And here's some elements of prayer. But we, we have to learn that. How about outreach skills? How about sharing our faith? How do you do that? Well, we were studying our Bible class this morning about how Jesus did that with Nicodemus and a Samaritan woman. Some pretty good lessons there about patience with people and leading them from what they know to what they don't know. Jesus was really good at doing that, wasn't he? Compassion with people, understanding people, insight into people. But or outreach skills are not easy. It takes time and effort and study and learning to be able to be equipped to do that. How about worship skills? Again, this is one if you come to worship all your life, we don't think about. But what does the Bible say about worship? And how should we worship? And what should be our attitude about worship? And how do we engage in worship? There's a lot there. The Bible talks to us about relationship skills, whether it's how to treat our neighbor or the husband-wife relationship or the relationship we have to government, or the relationship we have to unbelievers. I mean, there's just a lot in the Bible about relationships. You don't have to go down to the bookstore and buy a book by Norman Vincent Peale or some popular self-help author today about relationships. Just read the Bible. The Bible gives you a ton of material about how we treat other people and get along. Marriage skills. You ever notice when you got married, you didn't get a, a manual someone will give you about how to, how to do this? Now, there are a lot of good books that are written about marriage. But once again, we can go to the Bible. We can read passages like in Ephesians 5 and in Titus 2 and in 1 Corinthians 7 and any number of places that talk about marriage. But you need to learn that. And there are applications of those passages that will help as we study that. How about parenting skills? We did a class here not long ago on parenting. The Bible tells us we ought to be good parents and we ought to bring our children to nurture and admonition of the Lord. But how does that issue itself in a practical way? There are skills that we can learn. And then how do you learn how to teach others? Teaching skills or leadership skills, just life skills. I mean, you see with all of those things, we can find principles in God's Word and we can make application. And so how are we doing with developing various skills? How do you measure up? Do you have some areas in which you're lacking? 
that you need to learn to grow and develop. And then the last would be character. Character is the ultimate goal of all Christian education. It was D.L. Moody that said character is what you are in the dark. And that's, that's true, I think. Character is not in the mind, another person said, but it is in the will. And then I like this definition. Character is doing what you say you're going to do. A more formal definition is character is the ability to carry out a worthy decision after the emotion of the decision has passed. It's one thing to say we're going to do something in, in the heat of some pressure to say we're going to do it. It's another thing a few days or weeks later to do that. Kind of like our Bible reading program. We all get excited January 1st. We pass these out. We're all going to read our Bible and go through this. And then we're at the end of February and we're not doing it. See, what drives that, you see? The psalmist asks a question in Psalm 15:1, Lord, who may abide in your tabernacle and who may dwell in your holy hill? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? How would you answer that? Well, let me tell you how the psalmist answered it in the next verse. He said, he who walks uprightly and works righteousness and speaks the truth in his heart. You know what? You can sum that verse up in one word, character. Character. That's what he's talking about there, of being a person of character, developing a Christ-like character. Character sets us apart from the crowd. It builds trust in other people. It has a positive influence value. It promotes high standards. It results in a good reputation. It gives staying power. And it lives beyond the grave. J.R. Miller put it this way, the only thing that walks back from the tomb with the mourners and refuses to be buried is the character of a man. That is true. What a man is survives him and it can never be buried and so the question we have to get inside ourselves and be honest to ask and to answer is what kind of character do we have now when you look at these five things they all build one upon the other for instance we started with knowledge but then the knowledge should lead to proper discernment and then the discernment to convictions and the convictions, the skills of doing what we ought to do, and then finally, the character. And the question is, how do we measure up? How are we doing in our spiritual journey? Well, <clears throat> let me close with this little illustration. I know it's hard to believe, but baseball spring training is almost here. And there's a great story many years ago that comes out of that. The young people may not know this name, but if you're a baseball fan, you do. And if you're a little bit older, you know the name Dizzy Dean. Dizzy Dean was a great pitcher for the St. Louis Cardinals. In 1934, he had an astounding 81% winning record. He was 30-7. and seven. He led the league in strikeouts and in shutouts. He combined with his younger brother, Paul, and I'm not making this up, Paul's nickname was Daffy. Yeah, Dizzy and Daffy Dean on the St. Louis Cardinals. 
They won, between the two of them, all four games in the World Series in 1934. Dizzy Dean was nominated as the most valuable player. In the spring of 1935, when the rookies came to spring training camp, a sports writer for the St. Louis Dispatch went out to take a look at the rookies. And there was Dizzy Dean. And the, and the sports writer couldn't believe it. He said, Diz, what in the world are you doing out here? You don't have to report until later. I mean, you, you, you won 30 games. You led the league in strikeouts and shutouts. You're most valuable player. He said, Diz, what in the world are you doing out here? And supposedly, Dizzy Dean said to that reporter, he said, partner, when you quit getting better, you quit being good. Now, you know, that's not just true in baseball or in sports. It's true in life. And it's true spiritually. When you quit getting better, you're going to quit being good. And so are we content where we are spiritually? Are we content with our level of maturity and think that we've reached it, we can't do any better? Or do you see some areas we've talked about this morning that you can grow in and develop and mature and become more like Christ as you live for Him? I hope I've given you a lot of food for thought to go home and contemplate and to think about where you are. We close our service this morning. We close with a song of invitation and encouragement. If you need to make your life right with God, to do that. Whether it's something of a public nature that we can lift you in prayer and help you, or maybe you're not a Christian and you understand what it means to become a Christian. You have the knowledge to obey the gospel through faith, repentance, and baptism. And to understand that it is a walk with Christ. And as the song suggests, that you will let him have his way with you. Because that's what it's about, becoming like Christ. It may be that there are many of us here this morning that have become convicted by some of the things from God's word. And you say, you know, I, I can do better. I can get better. And I haven't done as good as I should. And maybe you just say a little prayer. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. I've been derelict my duty. I'm sorry I haven't grown matured. I'm going to work to get better. If we can help you and minister to you in any way, in a public way, would you come as we stand alone?